G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday the 5th of December and our topics this week are, are boomers causing the inflation crisis? Dun, dun, dun. And climate change above and below. Below what, DK, I hear you say? Well, you'll have to stay tuned to find <laughs> out. Of course, we also have our Two Ticks Town Talk, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history and finish off, as always, with a 4X bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up in the last two weeks. What's been going on? Mm. Okay, DK. Yeah, the last two weeks. We're sorry, listeners, we had to uh, skip last week. It's not something that we like to do. And in fact, that's the first time the first, in, yeah. I think it's about a year and a half, it might be, from, from memory or something like that, certainly over a, a year. However, it's not something that we like to have happen, but uh, we both had family commitments on uh, and it just couldn't work out. Uh, we're sorry. Uh, but that's how it it goes. But here we are. So look, I'm back from uh, being up to Sydney, celebrating my parents' sixtieth wedding anniversary, which was uh, which was good to get together. Although my sister got the the coof, so she wasn't able to come along to the um, the anniversary dinner. So she caught up later with them. And we, <laughs> and Mum, of course, t- tore up the certificate from the King, congratulating them. Oh. Uh, so, <laughs> well, I'm stirring her up about that because when, um, well, obviously, we knew it was was coming up. So you can you can contact the contact bureaucrats to get certificates uh, sent out uh, celebrating a 60th anniversary, and whilst. Their website's not too bad. I think was it's the Office of Parliament or something like that. Uh, you can't, it's not a hundred percent sure what you're going to get, and there's no sort of follow-up inquiry thing. It's just submit it, um, either with a certificate or affidavit saying, "Yeah, this is the these are the correct details." So, <laughs> Mum had apparently got one of the letters that uh, arrived was from. Um, she just she picked it up and she read it and she's she's saying oh this is just you know meaningless meaningless stuff from a from a bureaucrat saying how you know, how much they sort how wonderful it is that they're doing a 60th uh, anniversary of that and she ch- she chucked it out but then uh the other certificate turned up one from the the premier in new south wales and then uh the the attorney general there and so I said to her, the one you tore up was probably the one from the king. Oh, so, <laughs> it possibly, it possibly wasn't. But you know, you establish those things early, and it becomes uh, becomes part of legend. And it's there's funny. a, so, I'm sure there's an international warrant for her arrest. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Crimes that's against what, the crown. Yeah, <laughs> crimes <laughs> against the crown. Exactly, <laughs> exactly right. So yeah, look, that was that was a good um, uh, that was a good uh, trip up there. So I was just ru- come back from there and now sort of rushing around to get up to Brisbane tomorrow for the the opera. DK and I had a bit of a discussion beforehand that I was going to 
be up in his neck of a Australia. So yeah, I've been doing doing a bit of sort of frantic mowing and slashing and uh, a bit of weed spraying. Uh, so yeah, I, in fact, I've been using uh, on the grass areas and the path. I do use the the glyphosate just in sort of oh, yeah. the the minimum amounts. Um, but around the the veggies and fruit trees, I use I'm using one called Slasher, which is an organic weed killer, and um, they're not paying us for this advertisement. Although, if you want a Slasher, <laughs> so uh, it's something like uh, what is it? It's some oh, geranium oil. Something like that, and you really have to oh. you have to coat the entire plant. I mean, glyphosate you just have to sort of wave it in its direction and it absorbs <laughs> yeah. in. But this stuff you you actually have to coat it. Um, and in fact, you see in about in about an hour or two, it's almost like the whole all the chlorophyll's been sucked out of the plant. But oh. it's all yeah, it's all natural again. It's, it works out about four times more expensive. Yeah, glyphosate, which is why I'm only using it around the the food. But um, yes, yeah, so far it's looking good. I'll I'll keep experimenting with it. But if it can uh, if it can do the job and keep the weeds down, I keep on top of it. Uh, that will make life easier. And I'd rather not have the, the the glyphosates around the veggies and fruit tree. Yeah, I look. I understand that. I, I obviously use the the glyphosate like a lot of the, a lot of people do, but not around uh, plants that we eat. Actually, I've basically stopped using it because I've found a more effective uh, method, and that is uh, I purchased a uh, wor- a, a weed burner. Uh, from Budding's warehouse, and now I just run around with what effectively is a small flamethrower, and I just burn all the weeds uh, in and around my property. I can only how's do it, that. How's that been going? Really good. You got to obviously be careful uh, that it, when it's not. Uh, you got to do it when it's not too dry, uh, because otherwise it can very quickly get out of hand. Oh. Uh, got to keep a hose close by, sort of thing, because um, I have done that before. Turn around and half the you know the grass, half the lawns on fire. Oh, um, yeah, of course, sort of thing. So you know you got to be a little bit mindful about that. Um, but it does; it works really, really well. It doesn't stop them. Uh, you know, the, the bounce back rate is obviously very high than using yeah. some sort of chemical. Uh, but the beauty of it is that, of course, you're not using any chemicals. So you don't have to worry about that, any of the other plants or anything like that. So, you know, it is a bit more labor intensive. It does take longer and all that kind of stuff. But it's also way more fun oh. um, to run around burning everything. Has uh, it got a decent length wand? Yeah, it's a couple of meters uh, hose and I just attach it to a, a small... Uh, LPG bottle. So, and what's um, approximately the the width of the flame? Uh probably two inches, two inches Ooh, wide, and it probably goes about good. six inches from the end. And oh, it gets oh, hot. Holy moly, does it get hot? Yeah, right. Um, yeah. So obviously, got to be careful with it. But it is. It's a stupid amount of fun. So and. I can do it at the moment because we've had a lot of rain up here in Queensland. Um, it's stupid hot now. It's about 31 degrees Celsius out there, which let me check what that is in Fahrenheit for our American listeners. Uh, 88 Fahrenheit, uh, and it's about 
70% humidity or something like that. It's, mm. it's, it's really gross. The air is thick oh, uh, when you walk outside. So I've got the aircon on, um, which I don't really like living in aircon, but at the moment it is just it is just gross. But we also have a tropical cyclone that is uh, currently up in the Solomon Islands. It's a it's a, a tropical low that's heading towards Australia, which they expect to to change into a uh, a tropical cyclone. So that may affect us in the next 7 days. We don't know. We're not really mm. sure. It's at this point it's impossible to track where it's going to go and what the impact's going to be or intensity or anything like that. Um so right now we don't know, but some wet windy weather might be on the way. Hopefully, yeah. maybe. I I mean I don't well, hope sure for a cyclone, but yeah. It's definitely look if you if you do live in Queensland, um, or, or even they're predicting it could even go as far south as Sydney. So, if you're in parts of northern New South Wales, now's a really good time to maybe you know have a look at the old cyclone kit and maybe just check that you're a little bit prepared for for the weather that might be might be coming uh, in in the next ten days. Maybe maybe not, but good, it doesn't hurt to be prepared. Yep, doesn't hurt to be prepared. Doesn't cost you a hell of a lot. It's just a, a check. And if you haven't got a kit, use something like this as, as impetus just to put a few basics together. And then next time, all you're doing is just opening the cupboard, checking it off and saying done. Exactly. And that kit can be used for bushfires, for yep. other emergencies. You know, a lot of the stuff is pretty universal. So speaking about things that don't cost too much money, Combank... Hmm. IQ data has shown that younger Australians are cutting back even on essentials as rents and mortgage costs are rising. So young people are continuing to bear the brunt of rising interest rates and rental pressures, while older Australians are splashing out on cruises, dining out, new spending data has indicated. The report comes from ComBank, a joint venture between the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, Australia's largest bank, and the data firm Quantum. It's looking at the financial data of 7 million Australians. Its latest quarterly report found that after spending on housing costs is stripped away, people under 30 year old, 30 years old are even cutting back on essentials such as food, fuel, and insurances. Conversely, people over the age of 65 are continuing to grow their spending on non-essential goods and services faster than inflation. This divide between generational spending and cutbacks has been leading to concerns that the Reserve Bank of Australia's macroeconomic policy is unfairly punishing younger people. There have been accusations that older Australians are even helping drive up the rate of inflation that the RBA is trying to cool down with the rate rises. Hmm. Because, of course, we need to remember that older Australians are more likely to already own their homes. As interest rates increase, they're often less affected and in some cases may even benefit of an increasing interest rate if they have significant savings in the bank. Combank IQ data does show that people over 65 are spending above the current inflation rate of 5.2% on discretionary items such as entertainment and travel. Spending on cruises is up 
55% in the last 12 months, while online travel bookings have also soared to 30, uh, sorry, have soared by 34%. Now, of course, spending on cruises and online uh, and <clears throat> online travel bookings doesn't necessarily indicate that those people are of that older demographic. However, statistically speaking, we do know, especially cruises are generally the older population that go on cruises. And that's not just in Australia, that's around the world. Uh, of course, these figures, there are some discrepancies in the numbers. Uh, these are only averages, and it is known that one of the largest sections of Australia that are feeling stressed as the cost of living increases is older renters. Particularly women in their later years are susceptible to homelessness as well. Mm. It is more likely that you're feeling financially stressed. Statistically speaking, if you're listening to this, you are more likely to be financially stressed right now, If, especially if you're in an eastern state city, particularly Sydney or Melbourne. And as rents are rising after international immigration hit a record net high, as we spoke about in the last couple of weeks. And of course, net outflows to regional areas have slowed post-COVID, as also we've spoken about in previous episodes. Though I wish I wish the net outflows to regional areas would start reversing because huh. my, my little area has suddenly been discovered and there's people everywhere. Um, but ultimately, the cost of living pressures to have continued to increase for younger people. And the most recent data has shown that that trend is continuing. And it doesn't look like that trend has any sign of easing up into the next or the new year. So if you are young or an older person, if you're a person that's doing it tough, particularly around this holiday season, and you need some mental health assistance, Please, please, please reach out to your friends, your family, talk to your GP, or if you can't, you know, obviously with financial stresses and GP costs going up, give Lifeline a call on 13 11 14. They are open 24 hours a day, seven mm. days a week. Do not do anything silly. Yeah, look, agreed. Particularly around this time of year, the, uh, yeah, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of emotions get, magnified and that's that's good advice you know, there's a lot of social pressure to spend as, as there, well in this time of year. ridiculous amount of social pressure and you don't have to and really if you no. would well yes you don't have to um so yeah good good very good move dk on on throwing that in i support that um that approaches as well talking about things just taking um at the very least, taking a breath and a walk around the, the, the block and chatting to someone, yeah, it can, it can make a big difference. Um, on the actual topic of this, straight off the bat, I would argue the baby boomers are arguably the worst economic managers of modern times and how they behaved politically was to take from future generations at levels that had never been seen before. Unfortunately, this has not stopped with current generations, um, and I suspect there's a lot of value politically in the bureaucrats yelling out that it's all the boomers' fault. I see this uh, getting stirred up, and that narrative that's in there of 
Oh, listen, this inflation could possibly be the fault of the, the boomers just planting that seed. And you think, no, this inflation is due squarely to government policies and central bank policies, you know, uh, the monetary and fiscal policies. And I, <laughs> and I have a little... Um, a little way to re- remember re- remember that, uh, and swear word alert coming up. But this is my this is my way to remember it. The difference between monetary and fiscal fiscal S- central banks and monetary policy, and monetary the M they manipulate you. Government is fiscal, and F hmm. they fuck you. Yeah. So that's exactly how I think about it. And we're in this situation because of central bank and government policies. And to start to start trying othering a small section of the population, I'm suspicious. I'm not saying that it's um, not correct, but I am suspicious. And I'm also suspicious too because there didn't seem to be the baseline. There's there's two things there. They've increased spending. Compared to what is this? A, yeah. Is this a ten-year trend, or is it a trend since um, the start of COVID? Where yeah, you're, you've, a lot of them are yeah. in the last twelve months. Which, yeah, exactly. Yeah, which which means there's a lot of people sort of thinking, oh, okay, it looks like we're past all the stuff with the coof. Um, I'm going to now start dipping my toe into the water again. So you're comparing it to a baseline that is really not accurate. I, I've got I've got a bit of doubt about this uh, these figures. The other thing that I think uh, needs to be taken into account: uh, boomers have seen inflation and seen like really high inflation, which we had in you know the the late seventies, where you know you were you were talking about you know, interest rates getting up to you know, I can't remember what they were, 16, 17, 18% for, for houses and for, for personal loans. They might have even been a touch higher, but it was around those ridiculous levels. So if you've seen that and you understand how expensive things can get, there's a lot of argument, a lot of good reasoning to say, I'm going to bring forward plans to do some of the stuff that I want to do because in five years, three years, I may not actually be able to afford it. Because yeah. one of the things that people, and I, I, I blame the media and the government, but I do blame them. <laughs> I blame the media and government. One of the things that people forget is that inflation is cumulative. So when they say, yes. oh, look, yeah, we've brought the inflation rate down to you know, 5% this year from last year's 6%, no, they haven't bought it down. It just means that this year it's only going up 5%. So that 6% that was in there last year is already on there. It's not going yep. away. It's Good not a reduction. Yep. And you know, the way that they spin it, I think, is a bit of trickery. So, yeah, look, I'm, I, I'm sceptical about this narrative that's coming through and I yeah, I'm skeptical about this 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 narrative, and I think it takes away from the real problem of focusing actual attention on how to actually help people who are suffering under this current 
environment and genuinely suffering without trying to deflect blame to somebody else. I think that's a good point. I think you actually made a really good point about a lot of the baby boomers, uh, they did grow up once the currency was floated and it was extremely volatile and they have massive interest rates and huge uh, inflationary rates and things like that. It, it, so they, 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 a lot of them were buying their houses when interest rates were at, you know, 12, 11, 12, sometimes as high as 16%. Yes, cost of housing was a lot lower. Yes, incomes relative to the cost of living were significantly higher. So they could e- more easily weather the storm. But mm. I think it's important to remember what you've said is these people have already lived through that. So when they sit down and they look and they go, oh, the interest, the official Reserve Bank interest rate is at 6% and it's continuing to go up, hey, maybe it could get to what it used to be in the past. So as you said, maybe I should bring forward some of those plans that I might have had and get get this, in, you know, get the ball rolling on this travel or whatever while I can um, in preparation for things to get a lot worse. So I think there's definitely a group of people that are thinking like that. I also think you're exactly right that there's a a massive group of people that have probably had plans to do travel or spend money in certain things. And of course, COVID has has really stopped them. Uh, Speaking anecdotally, my parents have recently just retired. Uh, They're classic baby boomers. And they had big plans in 2021 to travel, um, and that was all basically stopped. Uh, and that now they're resuming the plans that they had over sort of sort of those those couple of years, but they're they're sort of compressing it into uh, a little bit this year, but mostly. 2024. So they're going to be away a lot in 2044, which is kind of unusual for them because it's sort of like a few years travel plans that they had organized for when they retired are now getting compressed just because of availability was another problem for them. Just because oh, once- Okay, yep. Yeah, so once the borders and things open up, people people that have previously canceled their trips, you know, got first preference and things like that. So the availability hasn't opened up until sort of now. Um so I think there's kind of like a bit of a perfect storm going on here. I, I do think the media love to play on the generational sort of conflict that's going on in a lot of households around the world as well. Um, <laughs> you know, baby boomers don't – they are a selfish group of people. They hate that too, um, but unfortunately it is. But at the same time, I mean, their parents' generation used to call them the selfish generation. So they, they've always been like that. They haven't changed. Um, if anything, they're very consistent, actually. Um, and, of course, on a, but on an individual level, you know, they took advantage of the, of the economic time and, and the, the politics of their, their time and things like that. And so you can't necessarily blame them too much for everything. But I don't think it's completely fair to blame them for, you know, the money printer being on by the previous government for f- far too long um, and, and this huge inflationary crisis that we have. Th- they may be contributing to it, but it's not really fair to blame them completely. Also, because, like I said, because a lot of them have paid off their mortgages, a lot of them don't have mortgages, they're not affected by the interest rate increases the same way as a lot of younger people are. Um and as I said, in some cases, they may have significant savings in the bank. So as soon as those interest rates rise, they actually have more money in their pocket. So they're going, hey, hey, this is good. Now we can spend up and things like that. So I think it's 
it's very hard that disconnect between younger Australians that are struggling and then all you know maybe their parents that are going on a cruise like you just there is a very uh, stark difference between between uh, the generations at the moment and that's not yeah. new that's been going on for quite a while so I think maybe if you're a baby boomer listening to this as unlikely as that is maybe see check on the younger people in your life and see how they're going you know maybe take them out for lunch or something like that and maybe that a small little thing like that might mean the world to them and it might not mean a lot to you financially speaking but they may be doing it a lot more tougher than you realize so i think a little bit of kindness especially around the the holiday season would probably go a long way and that goes for both you know at christmas dinner if you're a if you're a uh, millennial listening to this at Christmas dinner don't bash the, the baby boomers uh, that just don't understand what you're going through right now or when they say oh we did it tough we had 11% interest rates um, you know maybe not ruin Christmas dinner by yelling at Uncle Uncle Jim or anything yeah. like that find find a way to unite in common hate for the bureaucrats exactly exactly yeah. <laughs> That's that's the perfect way to end this subject. I think let's let's move on. It's time for our two ticks town talk. All right, this week we are going to the town, the Queensland outback town. Another another outback Queensland town. Uh, we're going to the town of Mitchell. Uh, the town of Mitchell lies on the Werrigo Highway between Roma and Charleville, so sort of southwest, very central, actually, as far as Queensland goes. Approximately uh, 520 kilometres west of the Sunshine Coast, and it has a population approximately of about a thousand people. Before the arrival of Europeans, the region was occupied by the Manand, Anji, and Gangari Aboriginal peoples. And based on archaeological excavations in the area, it has been deduced that they lived there for the last 19,500 years. And descendants of those original people still live in the area today. So that is pretty cool. A little bit of European history. The town is named after Sir Thomas Mitchell. He was an explorer and surveyor. He was actually the Surveyor General of New South Wales at one point, and he explored the area in 1846. There's a lot of really boring history that I, I was just like, no, nah, we'll skip over that. Um, <laughs> things like building a church and stuff like that. This, this is a very small town. There's not, not a huge amount going on, but... What is a little bit cool is in 1902, after a short standoff, Bush Rangers Patrick and James Kenneth were captured just south of the town of Mitchell at a location that was previously known as Back Creek, and it's now been called Arrest Creek, <laughs> which I think is a little bit cool. They did stand trial in Mitchell, and the courthouse to this day has been renamed Kenneth uh, Courthouse, which is a little bit cool as well. So it was oh. definitely a major event at the time. Uh, Patrick got the death sentence and James was sentenced to 12 years hard labor. Uh, so 
the reason I want to talk about the town of Mitchell is where do you get water for a town of a thousand people plus some tourists out in the outback? And I'm sure in previous episodes when we've talked about some of these outback towns, some of our listeners are probably wondering the same sort of thing, especially if they are really remote and don't have, uh, you know, rainwater collection and things like that. The short answer is, especially in this area, a little thing called the Great Artisanal Basin. Now, the basin is one of the largest underground freshwater resources in the world. It is Australia's largest groundwater basin, and it lies beneath parts of the Northern Territory, Queensland, South Australia, and New South Wales. It spans almost 1.7 million square kilometres, which is just over a fifth, one-fifth of the Australian continent. It's estimated that there are 65 million gigalitres of groundwater in the basin, which is enough to fill Sydney Harbour 130,000 times. Those numbers are so big, it doesn't even mean anything to me anymore. Uh, There's a lot of water in Sydney Harbour. Sydney Harbour is very deep. Uh, But 130,000 times, it's (laughs) absolutely ridiculous. So a, a lot of what the great artisanal basin now a lot of that area was at one point an inland sea so i suspect that some of that water is very very ancient from way back in those times so the town of mitchell though their water supply comes from three bores that are drilled down into the great artisanal basin uh and the depth of the bores. Actually, Ardeet, how deep do you think these bores need to go to get down into the basin? Uh, how deep do they have to drill? Um, just while I'm giving myself thinking, is it artisanal or artesian basin? I've seen it written both ways. Uh, but now that I say that, I think it is the great artesian basin. The great artesian basin. I th- I thought it might be, but then I, I just thought I'd double check on that because um, I thought maybe it's maybe it's called that. How deep down? Uh, oh God! If it's that big and that far under, um, I reckon a fair way down. So a hundred and forty meters. It's a lot. It's a lot deeper than that. that oh. Is- oh, is it? Okay. Well, get, okay, I'll give me another. If it's if it's a lot decent. Right. Okay. Then I'm going to say 420. It is roughly a thousand meters underground. Wow. It is, it is really deep down there. Yeah. It is way deeper than I thought it would need to be. Wow. The water is pumped. Um. I do think there's a certain amount of pressure, so I don't think they need to pump too much, but they do pump the water uh, in the town of Mitchell. They, they pump the water into a large concrete water tower on the western side of, of town, which does that gives the, the residents good water pressure. So they pump yeah, it up right. into the tower, and then you, know, you turn your tap on, and it, it's basically gravity-fed to you. Uh, but water that's coming to the ground is really hot when it, when it actually emerges. It's, uh, once it gets to the tank, 
It's about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, sorry, 50 degrees Celsius, which is about 122 degrees Fahrenheit. So it is Ooh. very hot. That, that's, you know, that's hot. A, a hot water system in your house almost, uh, I think mine's set to about 70 degrees. So, you know, you turn the tap on, hot water comes out, it's that hot. Um, and of course, it has to be cooled down before they can use it because... You don't want to drink 50-degree water. That's gross. Do you know how um, they cool it down? They just leave it, I believe. They just na- just let it cool down. I-, I have seen a source that said that if you live close to the pumping station, uh, you can have a hot water hookup so you don't have a hot water system in your house. But I could not find a single source for that claim. So I mm. don't know if that's true. I kind of like to think that it's true, but at the same time, I feel like there would be a lot of uh, infrastructure for for the local water authority. So I, uh, I don't know. Um, now, hmm. if you're going to have essentially what is a hot spring in your backyard, uh, what do you do? And the town of Mitchell decided to take full advantage of this hot water that's coming out of the bores, and they opened the great artisan spa oh. so they as you drive into town on the, along the highway if you're going from Roma to Charleville on your left as you enter the town there is the great artisanal spa and it's basically a hot pools so oh. one of the pools is naturally heated from, from the artisan basin uh, and it's maintained at a nice, comfortable temperature. It's not 50 degrees Celsius. Uh, they do let it cool down a little bit. Um, it's probably, they didn't actually say exactly what temperature range, but I'd imagine it's sort of like probably 35 to, to 40, something like that. Um, and of course, the temperature is designed, it's kept at a temperature designed to relax tired muscles, ease tension, and revitalize both body and mind. The other pool that they have there is uh, much, much cooler. So if you are looking for a little bit of a sanctuary out of the hot uh, outback sun, they also have a nice a cool, cooler pool. Uh, and this the spa, if you if you are going through this way and go, oh, that sounds like a bit of fun, why don't we go and have a nice uh, wellness spa? There is uh, easy access for uh, mobility-impaired people. So there's a hydro tear. So if you are in a wheelchair or you do uh, mobility-impaired, you're an older person, something like that. If you're one of the boomers that's going on holiday, ah, uh, yes. stop in and they can accommodate you, I'm sure. Now, one last fun fact to finish off is the 15th Prime Minister of Australia, Francis Ford, was born in the town of Mitchell. He is Australia's shortest serving Prime Minister. His How term short was he? His term lasted <laughs> only eight days. Poor bastard. What happened? He... The do you know what I didn't write it down from memory? The prime minister before him resigned, uh, and when he got into office, he was basically the acting prime minister, really, uh, because they held another election and he didn't oh. didn't win the candidacy, sort of thing. So okay, um, okay. So yeah, like it's one. It's more of a technicality than anything. Like you know. That that's why his his um 
his term only lasted eight days because he was really just filling in the position sort of thing. So, oh, still, it's, that's uh, you get the position, you get the the title. I, I'd like to think too. He was six <laughs> four. <laughs> I don't know how tall he was. No. Just, just for All the right. irony of it. <laughs> um. He was also Australia's longest living Prime Minister. He died at the age of 92 in uh, the 28th of January, 1983. <laughs> um, See, that's funny. <laughs> but, yeah, but Whitlam, Whitlam actually outlived him and took that mantle from him. So he's no longer the longest living Prime Minister. But I like to think that he still is because uh, Whitlam didn't beat him by, by much, so... Which is a little bit spiteful in a way, but. Um, <laughs> but well, yeah. that's, so, yeah. oh, no, that's that's still that's still. Good. I thought when you I thought when when you uh, were talking about that that you're going to say on oh, there was that one other thing, and that is that there's Crocs in the thermal in the thermal spas. <laughs> um, Crocs wouldn't be. I don't think the Crocs would be that far south. Nah, not not down by the Sunshine Coast, but yeah, it no. is. Look. The reason I've picked this is a bit of a, a bit of a quick one because there's not a lot in the town of Mitchell, uh, and but there is a really look. I wanted to talk about it because I wanted to talk about the great Artesian Basin, and that will be particularly relevant for our upcoming next topic. Uh, but it, it was a cool little place, and it is somewhere I wouldn't mind. Uh, stopping. I am. I very well might be going through this town uh, sometime next year. So, um, I might stop there. I might have a swim in the uh, in the spa, and I'll let you know if it's any good or not. Have, look, have a go in the have a go in the spa. We've got down um, uh, a little bit further down our way uh, the Peninsula Hot Springs, and there's a another one that's that's opened up. And when you were talking about those those temperatures, they have ones down there that are a thirty six. The hotter ones are thirty eight, and I think they've got one that's forty. But thirty eight and forty, it's mm. amazing how hot it is. Yeah, you, you don't have to go much above it for your body's natural temperature before you think, oh, I can't stay in here for a hell of a long uh, time. So. Yeah, it sounds like it'd be worth a worth a go up at Mitchell. Yeah, I believe, uh, and I only found this out recently because um, there was a, a famous actor who recently passed away, suspected from uh, staying in a, a, a spa pool too long. Um, Oh yeah, the um, Matthew Perry. Like, Matthew Perry. Yeah, yeah, Matthew Perry. He he passed away because they suspected he spent too too long and too high a temperature hot tub. I didn't realize this, but if you spend more than I think it's like twenty minutes in in a in a hot water hotter than forty degrees Celsius, like the you, basically your heart gives out, which is what oh. is suspected happened to him. So I didn't know this because uh, growing up we had a spa pool and <laughs> we would set it at forty, and I'd spend <laughs> hours in there. <laughs> I would, so I was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea it was so dangerous. So uh, you know, it is sad that Matthew Perry has passed away, but he's definitely taught me something about about the dangers of hot water from that. So, oh, okay. Well, then I'm guessing that they may not take it over forty. 
Yeah, probably not. There's probably like a sign or maybe a person comes around and be like, hey, you got to get out now because it's, you know, it's dangerous or whatever. But, um, but yeah. But anyway, no, let's that's move interesting. On. I'm surpri- that's- I, I am, su- I am surprised that it was that far down to hit, to hit water because I was imagining people, people just sort of sinking their own bores. But if it's that far down, it almost, it's, that's a commercial level, isn't it, for an entire town? Yes, so there's three for the town. Um, I'm sure there okay. are people because there is a river that runs uh, beside the town, um, but it, it is, uh, I think, it's fairly seasonal. Um, you know, the the amount of water in the river, so it isn't. It is a reasonably unsecure water source for the town for drinking water and things like that. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Also, it doesn't look like it. It does look very uh, like. Uh, uh, not dirty, but like silty. Um, yep. So I think you know when they look at it, they go, "Eh, it's a lot of money to sort of clean up the river and all that kind of stuff." But because the river is there, there would be groundwater closer up for probably just like personal bores and things like that in your backyard, oh, or maybe yeah, a bit yeah. of agriculture and, and stuff like that. But when you look on Google Maps, it, it looks very dry out there. Um, there's not a lot of green. In fact, really, one of the only <laughs> one of the only green <laughs> spots. On Google Maps is the uh, the the footy fields, so the cricket grounds <laughs> and the footy fields uh, are are green, and that's that's sort of about it. There is a golf course there, uh, but the golf course is uh, it's not a desert course, but it, it doesn't look like there's a lot of grass there, uh, or at least green grass. Let's say Queensland has a, a, a wonderful uh, natural type of grass that kind of just goes brown. It's not dead. It's just <laughs> <Yeah>. brown. <laughs> and as soon as the rain comes, it'll all turn green within a day sort of thing. It's it's pretty cool to watch, actually. But It's yeah. off, yeah. 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 Oh, very right. good. Interesting. It'll be interesting to hear if you ever if you ever get up towards uh, Mitchell. In, or get, interesting to hear if you have a spa when you get up towards Mitchell in Queensland. Yes. Oh, I have to. I have to now. I have to now. Huh. Uh Let's move on. Climate change. Climate change is going on above and below. I think I might have given everyone a little hint as to what I was alluding to. But Treasurer Jim Chalmers has confirmed what everyone has already known. Australia is not on track to meet its climate targets. He said, and I quote, we will need to do even more to secure sufficient renewable energy generation, transmission, and storage to meet our ambitions. There's politician talk for oh. we need to do more. <laughs> uh, the, cl- the climate targets that were legislated in one of the first acts of the newly elected Albanese government last year, the targets to lower emissions by 43% by 2030 and to achieve net zero by 2050 became law of the land. And to achieve the 2030 benchmark, an ambitious target to hit 82% renewable energy by 2030 was also set, but that actually wasn't legislated. Thank goodness, because they're not probably going to hit it. (laughs) And that's obviously a big issue. Meanwhile, environmentalists and farmers are hardening their resolve against a proposal to inject liquefied carbon dioxide into Australia's biggest underground freshwater reservoir. Do you want to guess what that is? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Look, this is 
just off the top of my head, it's probably a bit out there, but would it be the great artesian basin? Oh, well done. Incredible guess. <laughs> Fantastic work. Uh, so the great artesian basin spans more than a fifth of the continent, as we explained before, and it's worth about $13 billion to the national economy, and it is a vital resource for communities and businesses like the little community of Mitchell. Those who rely on the basin fear that the global mining giant Glencore, their plan to trial the storage of CO2 in an aquifer deep underground in Queensland Western's down region, could have disastrous effects. The plan involved capturing and liquefying CO2 from Milmerin coal-fired power station and then trucking it north to a storage well near the farming town of Mooney, about 400 kilometres west of Brisbane. So this is very close to the town of, of Mitchell. Glencore subsidiary carbon transport and storage comp corporation has is aiming to inject up to 110 tons of co2 per year into uh, precipice sandstone a groundwater formation in the basin which is about 2300 meters underground this is a long way hmm. Opponents say that the proposed three-year trial proposes an unacceptable risk to the environment and the agricultural centre. Hydrogeologist, that's a cool title, uh, Ned Hammer, said once the corrosive fluid is injected, it could quickly cause a 10,000-fold increase in groundwater acidity, which would dissolve the aquifer rock and result in the mobilization of heavy metals towards other existing water users. He says, and I quote, those metals include arsenic and lead and other heavy metals that make the water unsuitable for any use, particularly those that are occurring at the moment, such as for livestock. It's not just livestock drinking. The precipice sandstone is used by many towns. Mr. Hammer said... Uh, has concerns about the company's modelling and assumptions that are built into it and say that the plan should be thoroughly scrutinised by the Queensland Department of Environment and Science. Mr Hammond said he had not been able to find another CCS project in the world that involved the injection of liquefied CO2 into a water resource aquifer. All of the other projects globally are significantly targeting depleted oil gas reservoirs or deep isolated saline formations or both. That's what sort of, sorry, that's what sort of sets this project apart from all the others globally. And it's a big differentiation, mm. I think. I agree with him. <laughs> Queensland yeah. Conservation Council Director David Copeman said that farmers and environmentalists sometimes found, them at out, found themselves at odds, but not on this particular subject. He said as part of the climate wars, people, are, people invested money in carbon capture and storage projects because they were a way to just, justify the continued coal development. He says... We think a project like this will enable more coal mining, more emissions, and actually be worse for the environment. I think he's hit on a really important thing here. As I started off this topic, 
with the Treasurer Jim Chalmers confirming that Australia is not on track to meet its climate targets. What I fear is that there are going to be projects like that that are greenlit for the sake of chasing those numbers. Mm. And as a result, we may actually harm the environment more long term for the sake of ticking a box saying that we did the right thing. We're, we're almost almost certain to do that. And the way, reason I say we're almost certain to do that is because um, the unintended consequences of, of government programs is nearly always the opposite of what they're trying to achieve. So I, I think that's a reasonable expectation. Uh, there were, there's, two, there's two things here. This, this ex, uh, proposed experiment of the injection of the CO2 and the failing of the, the climate targets. The CO2 injection into the Great Artesian Basin I I agree with with you and the other people mentioned in the article that it's too high, and I figure if even a dummy like me can clearly see how easy it easily it could backfire, I'd rather have the CO two in the air. I know that might not be palatable to people, but you're talking about something as you said, uh, a water aquifer one fifth the size of Australia. And just for the sake of saving some CO2 going into the air, you're essentially going to pollute that. I just can't see how the risk can be justified in any way whatsoever. I I, I was reading uh, the article, and we'll, we'll have some of these sources in our, our show notes, talking about uh, how you know, such and such a study has been done and such and such an assurance has been given. And I look and I think, bullshit. We hear this all the time with everything that backfires and the backfire potential on this is just, it's just monstrously huge and I don't even understand how it can even be considered. Yeah, CO2 in the air is not that important compared to how much damage it can do under that. So I'm completely with you on that. And on for, yeah, insofar as, sorry, go on. Well, because if they do this, as, as he said, okay, so so to explain this a little bit better for some of our listeners, they may not quite understand the risks here. When you inject CO2 like this into the water, the water's acidity level increases, which means it will start to dissolve the rock that it is currently existing in. It's not like – I used to think of aquifers like um, kind of like a big cave underground that's full of water. That's not how you should think about it. It's more like um, – permeable so- rock like soggy rocks yeah or, or like like a gravel or like a sand that's full of water mm. um and it sits there kind of like a sponge if you like uh if you inject acidic water into an environment like this it will start to dissolve the permeable rock that it, it is suspended in and with that comes Risks of, as he says, uh, heavy metals like arsenic and lead being leached into the water that are currently suspended within the rock, um, as well as increased salinity. This is a big problem uh, yeah. with with uh, especially bores that are not as deep. Uh, you can drill a bore down to get a well, uh, pump the water up, and it's not as salty as seawater, but it's salty enough that you are unable to drink it and you can't water anything with it because it'll just kill it. So it, it is a really fine line of keeping 
the water within these aquifers good and drinkable. Not all of them are. The Great Artesian Basin isn't a single... Uh, it is a linked series of aquifers, but it's not like an underwater, an underground ocean, uh, even though it's kind of uh, depicted like that. Yeah. Uh, so th- th- there are isolated pockets. So th- the fear isn't here that they might poison the entire basin, but we don't know that that's not what would happen. If they continue doing it, it may continue to spread through the entire basin. And yep. that would completely, completely destroy little towns like Mitchell. They'll, they'll become uninhabitable. And at that point, do you think uh, Glencore is going to be held responsible? How do you ha- hold responsible the environmental destruction of, of uh, what did I say? Uh, 1.7 million square kilometres. Yeah. Well, what you do is you move it. In, you move it into all the liability into another company. Uh, take yeah. your funding out of that and do exactly with what we saw with what happened up at. Um, oh God, where was the one with the blue sky mine? Ah, uh, uh, what was it called? <laughs> I know. Why is that on my head? A couple of episodes ago. Um, uh, I can't think of the name of it. Hang on, I'll look it up. It, it, okay. it, it was like Whitnoom or something Whitnum, like that. Uh, uh, yeah, that sounds right. So as, you, as you're looking up and confirming it, what they what the uh, uh, company did up there was uh, essentially create yeah. a, a company. Whitnoom. That That's Whitnum. it. Thank yeah. you. Glad we got that right. Uh, the company created essentially a shell company with all the liability, then pulled out and carried on business as, as usual. So, whilst- hang on. We we should name and shame this. It yeah. is the Colonial, Colonial Sugar Refinering Company CSR. Yep. If you go yep. to Coles and Woolies, you can find their products on the shelf with a big CSR logo plastered on it. They created a subsidiary called the Blue Asbestos Company that they basically divorced themselves from, and Blue Asbestos Pty Limited went under and bankrupted itself, and CSR basically washed its hands and walked away. Yeah. Yep, exactly. So, in answer to your question of uh, what would the what would the company do if they if it did turn out they were poisoning the Great Artesian Basin, we have the template there. It's yeah. it's nothing new. It's it's how it it how it gets done uh, around the world in a many in many of these things with the where these these environmental disasters. So we have so many answers about how this could go wrong. We know how there would be no compensation. We've seen what happens with uh, country towns when the water supply is polluted or removed, such as when they've allowed things like the cotton farm at Cubby Station and basically towns downstream from that essentially died because their water was was sucked up by by cotton. We know what's going to happen. There's no there's no bloody surprises whatsoever. With this, and yeah, all this, all this crap about the the studies and that, it's it's just smoke and, and mirrors. This is a certainty to be a stuff up. Yeah, yeah just- look, I, I agree because even though they go, oh well, it's it's just a three year trial right now. The problem is, is we don't know. There's too, there's too many unknowns, and the yep. risks to me 
you know, and again, I, I have no expertise in this field, but to me, I look at it as a lay person and go, the risks are too great if this goes wrong. The yep. risks, uh, th- this is literally a life giving, uh, uh, the lifeblood of this, of this area. Y- you can't, you can't mess with this, you know? Um, and as a result, I look, uh, because the, 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 this area also is full of, uh, gas, natural gas mines, uh, or wells, I should call them. Yep. Uh, so why can't they pump them into some of these exhausted natural gas in the natural gas fields? Exactly. I, I don't understand. There's got to be an alternative, or is it just a case of this well was already dug, and so it's just a convenient location for them to to use? I feel like that's probably more what's going on. Um, rather than trying to do, you know, the right thing initially, and and look, I didn't want to go into too much detail just because it can get a bit tedious and boring. But initially, the original report uh, by Glencore was that the uh, the environmental impact report said that the water from uh, this precipice sandstone formation uh, was was unusable. Uh, and that was the original report that they sent to the Queensland government. Uh, and of course, that's not true. So <laughs> I was just the, about to say, can can you stop there and give me a guess that that turned out to be rubbish? Yeah, it's it's it is completely rubbish. Uh, that particular uh, uh, aquifer is used primarily for uh, watering of crops for cattle. And and drinking water for cattle, uh, but it is used by some stations. Uh, it is a little bit brackish, so it's a little bit salty. So you do have to. Uh, uh, I think there are a certain like membrane filters and things like that that they use on the stations. But it is there. It is a form of drinking water for them as well. So to say that the the this particular aquifer isn't used for anything is is complete shit. Excuse my yep. French. Uh, and. When you're starting off an environmental impact study with a completely uh, factually incorrect and borderline fraudulent claim like that, it really sets sets you off on such a bad start. And I just feel like Glencore is looking at a way to... Oh, carbon offset. Oh, look, we're pumping it into the ground so it can never yep. get back out and all that, which is fine. I don't I don't specifically have a problem with the technology. I have a problem with where they're doing it because this well was – they probably didn't drill this well. It was already there, and now they're, they're like, oh, we'll just use that, you know, and that's the problem I have. And so they can continue to burn coal. <laughs> well, we come in, – in the same way as we were talking about in inflation, um, and then looking back at root causes, a root cause on this is the uh, the climate targets that have been set uh, by been set by the the government. It's uh, it drives decisions like this. You know, if they've got these, um, if they've got putting these pressures on on companies and forcing this type of of action. I'm personally looking back towards them and saying this is one of the drivers for projects like this, so therefore there's responsibility for projects like this. Yeah, you know, look, to me, uh, 
one of the key things from that headline is uh, this, this is on Australia, but not being on track to meet its climate targets was uh, it's now official, but it's no surprise. In the same way to us, there'd be no surprise if this went wrong. But what, what we see is that like any failing government prob, uh, program, what's the answer? Of course, it's to expand more government power and throw more money at the problem. Uh, from that ABC article, there was the Productivity Commission and the OECD are urging government to dramatically expand the safeguards mechanism. Yeah, in other words, increase the power. So the safeguard mechanism for people who don't know was a a program that imposed emission limit uh, emissions limits on the two hundred and fifteen largest polluting facilities in the the country, like those who um, emit more than 100,000 tonnes of uh, greenhouse gases a year. So what the solution is, well, let's just make that bigger. And also from the same ABC article, there's groups like the ACTU and Smart Energy Council urging the government to set up a $100 billion fund along the lines of Sleepy Joe Administration's IRA to attract investment into green manufacturing. So that's the throwing more money at the problem. Yeah. But I thought it was telling that uh, Bowen's wanting more taxpayer subsidies, which will be confidential. Mm. I mean, this. <laughs> so you've got just, expand oh. the power, throw more money of it at it, and uh, implement things in in secret. Uh, it's 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 not it's even insulting. pork barreling. It's not even pork barreling because no. it's secret. It's just borderline just corruption at this point it's it's yep. yeah it, it is it's in our face corruption you're right it's it's very disturbing the way that this is going and especially you know uh i just had a look at where this well is because i i should have actually done this before uh i was too busy doing research for other topics <laughs> but the town of moody is very very small so I feel like this is a little, a bit of a case of uh, the big company pushes small town. You know, we've seen this before so many times where a small town of like 100 residents just cannot fight these big multinational companies because they just don't have the resources to do it. Uh, and obviously lobbying government and falsifying reports and da-da-da-da-da. It's, it's classic, you know. Uh, it almost brings to mind the uh, the the story of Aaron Brockovich and that kind of thing. Um, oh. Except we're, we're nipping in this in the bud before it, before it kicks off. Um, Hopefully, I mean that's, hopefully, that's, yeah. that's that's not yet guaranteed. And a, to- no. a lot of times, when you're talking about something like this, it has you know potentially millions of dollars for people and is able to be lobbied. There's no guarantee that this is the last we've heard of it, or that it won't be reworked in you know an, another way and continually sort of trying to trying to get through you know the the, the fence. They just they just love to find these these ways that they can they can get what they want. In fact, I was, I was it's it's sort of an apt um, metaphor on squ- on squ- on squeezing things through. I heard uh, Roseanne Roseanne Barr uh, on uh, Bill Maher's uh, Club Random podcast, and she's got a she's got a macadamia farm. She's trying to get going over in Hawaii. 
and was having is having problems with with pigs. And Bill Maher said, well, why don't you put up a fence? She said, we've got a fence up there. It goes down into the ground. You don't understand how sneaky these pigs are. Pigs are very smart, yeah. Yep, and she said she at one stage had caught a sow who couldn't get through, pushing her piglet through a little gap in the fence, and she's had pigs now breeding within her within her um, uh-huh. uh, farm. So if you think I'm making a comparison between uh, bureaucrats and lobbyists and unethical uh, companies with pigs, you're exactly right. They'll find a way, they're sneaky, and any way to get their nose into our trough. You're not wrong. You're yeah. not wrong. Uh, this, look, watch this space. Um, we may revisit this one if this story develops anymore. I hope it does. As you said, nothing's guaranteed. I, I don't know how this is going to shape out. I do really hope that it, it gets nipped in the bud, but I'm not even sure that that's going to happen. I, I, I don't know. Um, we can hope. We'll, yeah, we can hope. Let's move on. What happened this week in Australian history? I've come from a all right, uh, this week in Australian history, because we missed our 26th of November podcast, we've got a slonger, slonger, a slightly longer history this week and uh, next week. So we're covering uh, 21st to the 30th of November. November 21st, 1789, James Roos becomes the first convict to receive a land grant. 1936, the Hume Dam is completed, creating one of the largest water storage systems in the Southern Hemisphere. It's about six Sydney harbours worth. It's a, the, the Sydney harbours measurement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a weird measurement because it's hard. I feel like it's really hard to know how much water is in the Sydney harbour because it's, it is very spread out, but like it's, it's spread out in little coves. Like you can't yep. see it all at once, you know? It's a very weird unit of measurement, but <laughs> it is. But it just—it's just, it's just part, become part of the uh, the, the <laughs> psyche because you just like, you just sort of think, oh, how big's uh, how much water in Sydney Harbour? Oh, shitload. Okay, how much in the Hume Dam? Six. <laughs> wow, that's a lot. Six of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, six of them. <laughs> Nineteen sixty-nine on November the twenty-first, death of Norman Lindsay, prolific artist, sculptor, writer, and editorial cartoonist, age ninety. November 22nd, 1921, uh, Ginger Megs, Australia's longest-running comic strip, is first published in a Sydney-based newspaper. Sorry to cut you off there. I've looked it up, and apparently one Sydney Harbour, why it's used all the time, is because it is approximately 500 gigalitres. So oh, I think right. it's it's a nice round number. So they're like, ah, that's one Sydney Harbour. Oh, that's, that's that's very interesting. Yeah, it's it's approximately, but I think it's close enough that yeah. So there you go. So it's, so it's like that um, measurement. What is it? The oh, I'm sorry, astronomers, if I get this wrong, but something like an astronomical unit, one AU. Yeah, one I, AU. Think is That's the distance from Earth to the Sun? Yes. Yep. 
Yeah, which in some ways, in terms of the universe, is is very it's very arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. But, but yeah, I suppose it. Um, and a gigaliter is a billion liters. A gigaliter is a billion. Okay, yeah, five billion liters. Wow, five hundred gigaliters. So it's five hundred billion liters, basically. But that number is so big that I just I can't. I can understand how big Sydney Harbour is, though. So. Anyway, uh, well, that's probably that's probably not well. Okay, I uh, you've uh, maybe seen that in a little bit of a different light. Hmm. I, I used to live in city. I, I've spent a lot of time in the harbour, so I, I kind of get it. But hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, nineteen fifty-two on November the twenty-second, Lang Hancock, later one of the richest men in Australia, discovers the world's largest iron ore deposits in the Pilbara in Western Australia. And you'll remember Lang Hancock from our yep. Whitnoom episode. Exactly right. Cheeky bugger. Yep. Well, it's popped in. That's a couple of callbacks. Uh, 1956. The 1956 Summer Olympics, the first Olympic Games held in Australia, opened at the Melbourne Cricket Ground in Melbourne, Victoria, which the old man went to. In fact, oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's when, cool. He, when he was down in, um, when we were down in, he, he'd come down, had come down and visited us when uh, we were we living in town, and uh, we went to a a game uh, with a a bloke I worked with who was a mad Collingwood supporter, and I remember him turning to Dad and say, "Oh, have you been here before?" And Dad said, "Oh yeah, been here once before." And he goes, "When was that? 1956." In the Summer Olympics. So that's cool. <laughs> I also remember too, the mate had bought the um, bought a, a footy to have a bit of a, a kick round afterwards. Which in those days you could sort of run onto the field and kick the footy round. And um, Collingwood lost. <laughs> he got the hump and said, "Oh no, I'm not going to worry about. It. I'm going home." So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're never too old to take your footy and go home. I that you've just made me realize that that's not a thing anymore because that we used to de- always do that after the footy we'd yeah. grab we'd always have a ball with us and we'd go and play on the pitch after the game and that's not like a thing anymore so yeah there you go no no the fun police got that one too November 23rd 1880 Redmond Barry the judge who sentenced Ned Kelly to be hanged died just 12 days after Kelly was was hanged it was his ghost. It was the ghost that Ned Kelly got him. Exactly. That's one of those little coincidences. Uh, 1932, the statue of the dog on the tucker box is unveiled at Gundagai, New South Wales, by Prime Minister Joseph Lyons. A very popular um, song, a very popular meme, meme in Australian life and a uh, Tediously boring and remarkably unimpressive stop off that I'm sure many tourists have looked at and said, "You got to be freaking kidding me!" <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, we came all the way for that. Is that it? That's <laughs> <laughs> a that's a little statue with a bronze dog sitting on a tucker box, and you look at it and you go, "Ah, there it is." Right, now let me get some crap food from, uh, from the <laughs> <Yeah>. servo <laughs> and jump on the bus and head off. <laughs> 
Still, look, I suppose it's, it's a tourist spot, and who knows? From from somebody ticking off things on their list, maybe oh, it's. Um, I'm sure the Gunnagai local council love it. You know, the 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 servo, as you said, it's it's their bread and butter. They love it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, 1955, rounding out November the 23rd, the Cocos Islands uh, come under Australian control. November 24th in 1642, Abel Tasman becomes the first European to discover the island of Van Diemen's Land, later renamed Tasmania. 1934, the Anzac War Memorial in Sydney was opened. And in 1986, Pope John Paul II began an Australian tour. Uh, 1789, on November the 25th, for the purposes of understanding Aboriginal culture, Captain Arthur Philip captures Bennelong and Kolobek, um, uh, who, who was a, a senior man of the Eora uh, Aborig- Australian Aboriginal people, uh, in the Port Jackson area at the time of the first British settlement in Australia in 1789. Um, so Ben Long served as an interlocutor, which, which is someone who informally explains the views of a government and can also relay messages back to a government. So he was the he served as an interlocutor between the Eora and the British. Uh, both in the colony of New South Wales and in the United Kingdom. So, look, there's a bit of history behind Bennelong. Uh, hmm, not sure with, we don't know if, well, we keep saying we might come back to some of these things, but uh, yeah, it's an interesting history uh, of, of him, how, he's, how he served. Um, significant, significant Aboriginal Australian man in the early history of. Um, of Australia in the early the early settlements. So, look him up if you're interested, and maybe sometime in the future, uh, if we do a special episode, we might get on to to Ben along and a couple of other people who uh, also stood up and re- resisted some of the settlers, which we've touched on in some of our uh, Two Ticks yeah. Town talks, but some of yeah. our previous episodes. I, yeah. I also believe the the restaurant inside the Sydney Opera House is, is named after him. It's called mm. Benalong after him, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 1910, the Royal Australian Navy is established by the Naval Defence Act. Um, 1985, a man wearing a chicken suit walks into the Australian House of Representatives and sits on the government uh, front bench. And he is later removed. Sounds like a joke. Yeah. <laughs> a, man, a man in a chicken suit walks into a Australian yeah. Parliament house. Yeah. <laughs> and then oh, he's removed. <laughs> now, I'll include a link to a short video in the, the show notes um, entitled The Chicken Man. But The Chicken Man actually turned out to be an MP, Bruce Goodluck, uh, who was uh, a sitting member of Parliament at the time. And it was done by a dare from a Labor counterpart, and he said he can't even remember what the issue was that he was trying to highlight at the, the time. Um, but, yeah, it, uh, oh, it, was, it was an interesting, <laughs> an interesting <laughs> stunt, made, made a few waves, got a bit of attention, uh, and unsurprisingly, that tends to be what he's remembered for. Um, he got an order. He got Order of Australia, so. Oh, did he? Yeah. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. So you'd, you'd heard of Bruce Goodluck before. Yeah, I had. Yeah, yeah. So he caused a bit of he, he made some waves, but <laughs> yeah, you know, it didn't it didn't hurt him long long term. So oh, oh, good on him. Two thousand and one, the Socceroos lose zero to three to Uruguay, uh, Uruguay, and fail to qualify for the two thousand two FIFA World Cup. Um, shame. Yeah, yeah, it was. But still, next year. Uh, <laughs> look, oh, well, actually, maybe it's going to be a thing that we bag out the Socceroos. We just maybe we need to yeah. embrace it. Uh, Two thousand and three, Marilyn Warren is appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Victoria, becoming the first woman to head an Australian Superior Court. November twenty sixth. 1942, the Battle of Brisbane riot between US and Australian servicemen uh, stationed in Brisbane occurs. Now, does that ring any bells for you? Mm, the Battle of Brisbane. Uh, this was uh, a riot between... US and Australian servicemen. Yeah, US and Australian servicemen because uh, the... The Yanks, the Americans were paid. Uh, they were paid more when adjust when like converted to Australian currency. So they had they were cashed up essentially, wow. uh, and the Australian servicemen didn't like the fact that a lot of them were whining and dining the local ladies. Let's say, and you know you get Aussies full of Bundy rum. And you know, causing causing some mischief in their eyes, and before you knew it, uh, basically, I, I believe it was the Australians started it, and it was just like a riot uh, between between the the armies, basically. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think there was there was like there was uh, complaints with the Australian uh, military personnel not not getting the same sort of. Uh, 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 rights to leave and things like that. So the Americans had it a lot better, right? And, and things like that. So there was a lot of disgruntled Australian servicemen at the time as well that sort of fueled it. Um, right. And I believe, I think it was an Australian was killed. Uh, I think an, a, an American MP had a shotgun or something, and basically the Aussie didn't back down, and he and he blasted him away. So there was, I think it was one man was killed and a number of were injured um, and it became a real sore point uh, between Australia and New Zealand, a, kind of a low point in relationship. Um, Australia and, and US. Yeah, and I think it was, um, what did I say? New Zealand. Oh, did I? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... I think it was really hushed, hush hushed at the time, ah. and I, I don't know if it was as a result of, uh, but U.S. servicemen were given a little book after this event to tell them basically how to behave in Australia, and like you know, <laughs> this, this is the lingo, and this is the currency, and this is what you should do, and this is what you shouldn't do, and just just stuff like that, and I mean. It, those sort of little books, the little handbooks that give you the basics, the little basic rundown and stuff are still very popular with militaries around the world when they go to different countries for a good reason. Like there's, you know, this was a terrible thing that didn't need to happen and it, it, it did, unfortunately. Um, yeah. 
So it was an uh, interesting little bit of history. A lot of people don't yeah. know about it. So yeah, well, it, uh, it, it didn't really ring a bell for me. There was a faint bell, but it didn't wasn't something I knew about. I knew you, I had a fear. Yeah, I think we talked about this last year too. Oh, did yeah, we? I think so. I suppose. Yeah, I suppose we get. Well, maybe that's why it rang a, a small bell. I suppose we're doing the annual history. We're going to uh, going to have some repetition there. But anyway, that sounded fresh to me. <laughs> Staying up in Queensland, 1987 on November 26th, the National Party deposes Sir Joby Oki Peterson as party leader, but he refuses to resign as Premier of Queensland. Uh, he was not present at the caucus meeting. 2004, riots take place on Palm Island in the Torres Strait following the death of an Aboriginal man in police custody. November 27th, 1876, legislation is enacted in Queensland, creating the first public fire service in Australia. Oh, there you go. That's a first for Queensland. Woohoo! Yeah. We're number one. We're number one. <laughs> um, November 27th, what was that, 1876, creates the first public fire service. Um, 1877. Uh, the first Queensland public fire service accidentally burns down. Their- <laughs> <laughs> no, <I> just- <laughs> uh, 1979, the first day-night uh, one-day international cricket uh, occurs at the Sydney Cricket Ground, which was going to be the end of cricket, but obviously wasn't. Uh, November 28th, 1903, the Petriana spills 1,300 tonnes of crude oil in Port Phillip Bay down here in Victoria. It was Australia's first recorded major oil spill. Uh, 1942, Australian pilot Ron Middleton earns a posthumous Victoria Cross for valour in bringing his crew and crippled bomber home after a raid on Turin in Italy. And 1992, death of Sidney Nolan, one of Australia's most well-known painters, aged 75. Uh, November 29th, it's a bit jam-packed, 1854, the Eureka flag was flown for the first time during the Eureka Stockade Rebellion in Ballarat. Um, Another one that maybe we get to. Yeah, we will have to, yeah. We're going to have to do the whole Eureka Stockade, the Rebellion, and, yeah, the whole lot. Yeah. It's a good story. It is a good story. Uh, 1948, the first Holden car, the Model 48215, popular. Oh, that rolls off the tongue, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what shall we call it? Shall we, shall we call it the, you know, the, the Turag, the uh, Exedio? No, let's call it the 48-215. <laughs> but popularly known as the FX. Rolls off the assembly line and it's launched by Prime Minister Ben Chifley. The on-road cost was approximately seven hundred and sixty pounds. Now, ran to the ran. I didn't ran. I <laughs> leisurely opened up the RBA <laughs> inflation calculator. Oh yeah, seven hundred and sixty pounds uh, in nineteen forty-eight money. Today's money is uh, about fifty-two thousand. Oof. Yeah. So it's not. It wasn't cheap. No. But hey, that surprised me. I yeah. thought. I thought it would actually be. Um, I, I thought it would be surprisingly cheaper compared to today's ones. But yeah, that's 
Oh, maybe we shouldn't complain so much. Well, maybe. Maybe. Um, 1967, the first Australian satellite WRE sat is launched from Woomera in South Australia. Um, 1980, in Queensland, the National Party government... Just back to that one. It's just ridiculous we don't have a space industry coming up. But anyway... Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> There's always time. Yeah. Uh, 1980, in Queensland, the National Party government of Joe Biocchi-Peterson is re-elected. That was in 1980. And just calling back to that, it was 87. 86 or 87, yeah, something like that. that uh, um, so Joe was um, deposed. Uh, Eighty-two. Thomas Keneally, the winner of the uh, the first Australian winner of the Booker Prize for Ginger Meeks, which we mentioned before, is the longest running um, uh, comic. And I'm scanning my notes; can't find where that is. But uh, <laughs> rewind. Uh, 1988, uh, the four acts granting the Australian Capital Territory self-government are given royal assent. 1990, Treasurer Paul Keating announces that Australia is experiencing an economic recession. Uh, yeah, he got a lot of flack for that. You probably It's probably too, um, 1990 is probably a bit too long ago for you to remember. No, that, but, but, was, but yeah. yeah, I'm familiar with it because... Uh, as someone that works in financial services, it's constantly called back to. Oh, it's course. a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. Because, uh, of course, famously, we haven't had one since. Uh, not that it actually makes, like, we've we've had depressions, but technically not recessions. And it's like that technical, mm. you know. Um, and I think, honestly, I think uh, whilst... I, I don't know. I, I think the terminology should be changed because I think it's it's okay. We need to come to terms with it, the fact that it's okay to have an economic recession. But yep. that's that's a whole – I'm just whinging now, basically. Well, it is, and I could also have a whinge about recessions and that being caused by central banks and that. But anyway, yeah. uh, 1997, in Australian Socceroos news, in what has come to be known as the Around Game, the Socceroos draw 2-2 with Iran at the Melbourne Cricket Ground after leading 2-2. But according to the away goals rule, Iran qualified for the 1998 FIFA World Cup. Because they had the home team advantage. Yeah. Oh, well, it's always next year. <laughs> no, the one after that we lost is to Uruguay. <laughs> Uh, November 30th, 1878, Advanced Australia Fair first sung publicly at the Highland Society of New South Wales annual Scottish concert in the Protestant Hall, Sydney. Earlier than I would have thought, 1878. Yeah. Yeah, 1960. Also, it, it seems Go. like a really obscure thing to have sung it at the first so Ooh. for our internationalists that don't know advanced australia fair is the australian national anthem so the, the, the for the first public singing of it being the highland society of new south wales annual scottish concert seems like a really obscure thing why wasn't <laughs> it played at like 
I don't know, government house or, or I don't know, like anywhere else. It just seems kind of vague. Well, I suppose, like, I suppose then it wasn't it wasn't an anthem. Uh, sorry, it wasn't the national anthem. It might. Mm. I don't know. That's a, that's a good point. But I was with you when I <laughs> read that. I, I thought that was uh, amusingly obscure. So yeah. yeah. 1961, an ANSAT A&A Vickers Viscount aircraft crashes on takeoff into Botany Bay in New South Wales, killing all 15 on board. 1983, the Australian secret. In fact, this. Uh, what about? Yep, that finished. This is this is going to finish off this week in Australian history, um, and. <laughs> Is what a, what has been a theme this episode? We're talking about uh, government incompetence and stuff up. Uh, Nineteen eighty three, Australian secret intelligence service agents bungle a training exercise in the Melbourne Sheraton Hotel. So uh, let me just <laughs> give a few details because it's it's interesting. Uh, on and this is from Wikipedia. I'll uh, I'll leave a, a link to this in the the show notes. On thirtieth November nineteen eighty three, ASIS, that's uh, Australian Secret Intelligence Service, garnered unwanted negative attention when a training operation held at the Sheraton Hotel in Melbourne went wrong. The exercise was to be a mock surveillance and hostage release of foreign foreign intelligence officers. So in March 83, ASIS had begun training uh, a covert team of civilians at Swan Island, Victoria, whose uh, pretended role was to protect or release Australians who may be threatened or captured by terrorists overseas. Uh, The military in 1981 had established a counter-terrorist unit for operations only in Australia. Uh, The personnel involved in the training operation included 10 operators, four ACES officers, six ACES civilian trainees, two commandos from the Army Reserve 1st Commando Regiment uh, with with one sergeant participating as as an observer. So, okay, fair enough. You've got to have some sort of um, real-life training. However... The training operation involved junior officers who'd undergone three weeks training prior and were given considerable oh, three weeks. Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> and were given considerable leeway in planning and executing the operation. The mock hostage rescue was staged on the tenth floor of the hotel without the permission of the hotel's owner or staff. (laughs) Oh, no. When ACES operators were refused entry into a hotel room, they broke down the door with sledgehammers. The hotel manager, Nick Rice, he got notified that something was going on there by a guest. When he went up to investigate, he was forced back in the lift by the ACES operators who rode down with him and chucked him out into the chucked him out into the the lobby um uh, where I say and forcibly ejected rice into the lobby lobby so rice having had no heads up on this he thought okay there's a robbery in progress <laughs> yeah. as you would if you're the manager of the hotel so rice called the police so when the lift started coming back down to the, the ground after that, the ASIS operators emerged wearing masks, openly brandishing 9mm Brownings and Heckler and Koch MP5 uh, submachine guns, two of them with silencers. 
They force their way through the lobby to the kitchen where two getaway cars were waiting outside the kitchen door. Police stopped one of the cars and arrested the occupants, two ASIS officers and three ASIS civilian trainees who refused to produce any form of identification. Now, it goes on, involves the Minister for Foreign Hairs, Bill Bill Hayden, you know, immediate and full investigation as they, you know, bloviate. There were reports prepared. Vic Police did their own uh, re- report. Uh, ASIS Director General didn't really co- cooperate. Um, there was the whole lot of bloody secrets, secret squirrel stuff, as you would uh, expect. You know, there was, um, you know, in the state of Victoria, there's a long list of criminal offences as a result, you know, including possession of firearms without a licence, possession of prohibited implements, including machine guns, silencers and house-breaking tools, aggravated burglary in possession of firearm, common assault, willful damage to property, property and possession of a disguise without lawful excuse and numerous motor vehicle offences. So a year after that... Um, the director of public prosecutions included concluded uh, be, be prepared to be horribly surprised by this <laughs> victorian director of public prosecutions concluded that while certain offenses had been committed including criminal damage and assault with a weapon there was insufficient evidence to charge any person with a specific offense so the hotel ended up getting out three hundred sixty-five thousand after taking it to court, but no one, of course, in the cock-up was charged. Nah, and one of those people's probably the director of Aces these days. <laughs> yeah. Aces is a weird one because it's it's like Australia's equivalent of MI6 or the CIA or anything, but like you never hear about what what they do. No, you never hear it's it's. It wouldn't surprise me if there was like a government mandated press blackout or something about ASIS's activities because you never ever hear about them. And I only know a little bit of rumblings that I heard through the grapevine through some intelligence people I knew in the military and stuff like that. But yeah, like ASIS is like a black hole to me. I have no idea what's. It's kind of cool though that they bungled up a training exercise in the eighties. That's hilarious. Oh, yeah, it was. <laughs> it was hilarious. <coughs> and if you, a, a good bit of advice is if you're ever drinking in a pub with someone from ASIS, make sure that you open your own beer. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't let them bring it to you unopened, which takes us to our forex. Bottle top question. Okay, these two questions are actually from a Carlton draft. Uh, oh, bottle top. Bloody yeah. hell. Yeah. Yes, uh, look, it's, it's, a, it's a beer bottle top question, but uh, yeah, not quite Forex, not quite the, uh, not quite the caliber. Um, now, sometimes it's a hard and it's an easy. I reckon these are two tricky ones. The first one's probably a bit more complicated. So we'll, we'll start with that. Uh, in athletics, how many events are in a heptathlon? Heptathlon. I'm trying to think what 
app. How many exactly? You try to think hep. what hep yeah, is. What yeah, hep, what, what hep is. So hex, hexagon is five, but what's a heptagon? Oh, I actually don't know. I don't know. It's been a long time since I did uh what is it? I can't even remember what the 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 mathematical study of, of shapes is. I'm geometry. gonna go geometry, that's the one. Um What is a heptagon? Is it is it even a heptagon? I, I is don't it- I don't think so. And it I went through the same reasoning and I thought, no, that's not familiar to me. Okay, so I know a hexagon, no, a pentagon has five sides. Yep. A decagon has ten. I, I remember that. So no it's decagon. somewhere between five and ten. I don't know. I'll split the difference. Is it, is, is it seven? It's exactly seven. <laughs> oh, there you go. Yes. Oh, well that done. Was a, that was a guess. <laughs> well, yeah, got there. So, yeah, got it was it. seven. So there's a lot for, for men's and women's, there's um, – uh, different uh, events. Uh, there's there's a it's like a, a, a short run, a long jump, a, um, a shot put, high jump, hurdles, pole vaults. Um, but for the women, they've got uh, javelin rather than um, rather than shot put. I believe is that the case. So. Yeah, there is a, a difference, but basically, uh, both men's and women's have seven events in it. Okay. Yeah. Now, uh, this isn't really well. Well, actually, that wasn't Australian either, other than the <laughs> the, the bottle top from which it came. <laughs> uh, which is faster, the peregrine falcon or the cheetah? Peregrine falcon. Oh, you're completely correct. Now, that was very confident because you know the answer. Yeah, I know. I'm pretty sure the peregrine falcon is the fastest animal on Earth, period. Um, in a dive, I think it reaches speeds That's higher it. than any other yeah, animal. And, and I only know that because it is an Australian animal. And so, it's always like, ha-ha, we, we beat everyone else. Um, which isn't surprising that our birds of prey will kill anything and beat them like that's that's such an australian stereotype right like everything he wants to kill you so um i believe the cheetah is the fastest land animal yes well i did uh, i did look it up and like all things it depends on how you measure it you're completely correct uh that the peregrine falcon wins because it hits its top speed when it dives of about 240 miles per hour, 386 kilometers per hour. Wow. Yeah, that's fast. That's that's really fast. Um, When the cheetah's running long, it gets up to 80 miles per hour, 128 Ks. But even as the uh, peregrine falcon is flying along, it can still hit 60 Ks, 96 kilometers per hour. So even yeah. when it's just flying against it, the cheetah beats it. Um, but that dive figure, I wouldn't have guessed that high. Because I believe that's how they hunt. They fly up really high and then dive down onto other birds. So, like, it is 
it is a uh, like we didn't take a bunch of animals and throw them off a building and see which one was fastest. Yeah. Like, <laughs> it is a behavior, you know. It's it's a regular behavior that they do, and they need to reach those speeds to basically catch whatever whatever it is that they're hunting. So, um, and also I, I think I, I went to Taronga Zoo and they have a peregrine falcon there, so they tell you about it and stuff like that. So. Uh, okay, you'd have to be built pretty um, like sturdily. If you're hitting your prey at 386 k's, I mean oh, that's yeah. that's a high high speed impact. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they're not they're not messing around. It's a it's a, 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 a like a full blown bird of prey. Uh, 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 what do we call it? A um, apex predator. Bloody oath. Um, they're also like a really beautiful bird. Um, and they love, uh, uh, like cities and stuff. I believe they they normally uh, have nests and things on the sides of cliffs and stuff like that. So they, they're in the cities. They actually do really good. So oh. yeah. So they they're oh, one of these ones that's not being driven to an extinction. Surprisingly, there's like a few of these bird species that seem to thrive a lot in uh, in cities and i believe this is this is one of them uh, pigeons of course pigeons are a uh, uh, a rock dove so they're a bit similar yeah. in the same sort of way i'd imagine the peregrine falcons in the city eat a lot of pigeons now that i think about it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh that'd be interesting to know that yeah. would be very very interesting to know yeah Oh. So hey, there, well yeah. done! You got you got two for two. Well, one was a two guess. for two. It was just a yeah. lucky guess. Well, you still got it. Give yourself a win. <laughs> I'll give that. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take that. Thank you very much. Yep. Uh, and on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the R slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe and give us an honest review as this helps us out with the algorithm immensely. Otherwise, join us next week, and I promise it will be next week, uh, for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks for listening and tell your mum I love her. Thanks, DK. See ya.